Lionel for asking me to introduce him. Lionel is familiar to, to many of you, but he's the Global Justice Research Fellow at St. Anne's College. He's also the convener of Oxford Transitional Justice Research, um, which a role that he's been taken, he's taken on since the beginning of this year and has been doing excellently. Um, so we can certainly see that from the number of activities that have been happening. Um, but in addition to this, Lionel draws on a wide range of, of practical expertise. He's worked at the Special Court for Sierra Leone, particularly working on the Charles Taylor decision. He's also worked at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, I mean for Yugoslavia, um, working on, amongst others, the Karadich decision. Um, and today he's going to take us to East Africa, where we get a, a taste, and this is actually the first time I've had the opportunity to, to hear some of Lionel's research material, a taste for the work that he's been doing on the role of the International Criminal Court there. And as we see Uhuru Kenyatta being the first head of state who will likely um, stand trial before an international criminal tribunal. This is an incredibly topical um, piece of research to be doing. And um, in addition to that, and possibly credit to, to both Lionel's research and, and the fact that he's tapping into a current debate at the moment, um, he already has a book contract for this work, um, which is the title of his talk, uh, The International Criminal Court and the end of impunity in Kenya. So thank you very much, Lionel, for being here. Thank you all for coming, and I look forward to the presentation. Thanks very much, Nikki, for a very kind introduction. Um, terrific to see so many familiar faces around the room. Um, I can feel very welcome, uh, a little less nervous as well. Um, I'm just going to speak um, briefly. Um, I realise there are some people here who know a bit about transitional justice, others who know a bit about the International Criminal Court, others who know a bit about Kenya, others who know a bit about all of it, others who know a bit about none of it. So I'm just going to provide a background on all of those things um, so that we can hopefully have a very vibrant discussion um, at the end of that. Um, so this is the topic of, of my DPhil thesis. Um, and I, I came to it um, basically trying to, to work out how, how we can start to assess the effectiveness of uh, transitional justice mechanisms, in particular international criminal tribunals. And there have been a few other people who have done studies on, I guess, normative ideas of what it is that they want international criminal tribunals to be. What it is they want them to be for victims, what it is that they want them to do in terms of providing an historical record. What I'm trying to do here is to assess the effectiveness of the International Criminal Court according to the International Criminal Court's own terms. So what is it that the International Criminal Court is trying to do and how effective have they been at achieving that objective? Um, and now when I say the International Criminal Court, that raises all sorts of questions. Am I talking about the court or am I talking about a particular organ of that court? Am I talking about the office of the prosecutor? the defence, chambers, presidency, assembly of state parties. Um, and I, I could have selected any of those. What I have decided to focus on is the Office of the Prosecutor, the OTP, um, which most people would agree is, is the engine room of the court. This is, this is where a lot of the really important early decisions are made as to which situations the court will focus on, which cases they will focus on within those situations, which persons they will charge, for which crimes they will charge them with. All of these decisions are made within the Office of the Prosecutor. So this whole project is looking at what is it the Office of the Prosecutor is trying to do and how effective is it being at achieving those objectives. 
So if we talk about what is the ICC's objective in Kenya, and keeping in mind by ICC I mean the OTP, here is Louis Marino Ocampo, the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. He served a nine-year term commencing in 2002. And here is what he had to say was his objectives for Kenya. Uh, now, I've just selected three quotes there. Um, I have at least seven or eight in my collection, but basically they're all saying the same thing. He's saying that what the OTP is trying to do in Kenya is to end impunity, end the cycle of impunity. This is what he is promising to do, and this is what I'm trying to set out to test, hence the topic of my talk today. To what extent has the International Criminal Court and in particular the Office of the Prosecutor, contributed to the ending of impunity in Kenya. Um, and this language of impunity from the prosecutor comes from the Rome Statute itself. In the preamble of the Rome Statute, it lists a number of different objectives for the court. Justice, um, reparations, um, it lists uh, uh, peace, it lists um, historical record, truth-telling. Um, and any of those objectives could be legitimate objectives for the court to be serving. But the prosecutor has focused on this one particular objective of ending impunity. Um, and that language comes from the preamble to the Rome Statute. Uh, the other important provision for the purposes of this study is Article 17. And that talks about what is the role of the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court, unlike the other international courts, including the ICTY and the ICTR, it was set up to be complementary to domestic institutions. That is, domestic uh, governments had the first opportunity to investigate or prosecute those who were suspected of uh, committing crimes within the court's jurisdiction, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And only when they fail to do so, when a domestic state fails to investigate or prosecute, only then does the ICC have jurisdiction over a case. So this is, this is what in the literature is called complementarity. The ICC exists and it's complementary to domestic institutions. Now when the framers of the Rome Statute were first uh, debating over how this would work, what they had in mind was that the ICC would sit back passively and observe whether prosecutions and investigations are going on. And only when they failed to do so would they get involved. But soon after the court was established in 2002, the idea came about that perhaps the court could be doing more than that. Perhaps rather than just sitting back and waiting to see if prosecutions occur, the court could actually encourage those prosecutions to occur. In other words, trying to encourage it so that the court has no cases because if cases are being prosecuted at the domestic level, they will not be prosecuted at the ICC. Um, and this in the literature is what's called positive complementarity. So the active encouragement of domestic prosecutions and investigations. And this is how, again, our friend Mr Ocampo, this is how he says he's going to end impunity, through this strategy of positive complementarity. So you can see in the first sentence he's going to encourage national proceedings where possible, and when that does not occur, then the ICC intervenes, and uh, they will initiate prosecutions against the leaders of the crime. So the big fish is who the ICC will prosecute. But that's only a second step, only after they have first tried to encourage prosecutions. 
And as a result of this strategy of positive complementarity, the prosecutor has said that the number of cases that actually reach the court should not be a measure of its efficiency. Rather, on the contrary, it's the absence of trials before the court as a consequence of regular functioning national institutions. That's what the prosecutor says is a success. So according to the prosecutor, if the court has no cases before it, and that's because uh, national institutions are functioning correctly as they should be, that is a success for the prosecutor. And that is the test that I've set up for this project. That's what I'm trying to work out whether this has happened. Now, this, this, there's been a lot written about this idea of positive complementarity of which I've just spoken. And there's been a great deal of, of hope which has been expressed. And that's because there's, there's a contradiction in the International Criminal Court, a tension. Because on the one hand, it's a court with limited resources. On the other hand, it's a court which tries to have global reach. You think of all the conflicts which are going on in the world, which could perhaps include crimes against humanity or war crimes, and could perhaps have ICC's jurisdiction, and the number of persons involved in those crimes. The ICC simply cannot prosecute them all. But at the same time, it's saying it wants to end impunity. Well, how can it do that? And the answer is through the strategy of positive complementarity. They're going to encourage domestic states to conduct their own investigations and prosecutions so that the court does not have to. This is the great hope of the International Criminal Court at the moment. So Burke White, for example, is one of those who have written in this area, and he said that it's perhaps, it's the best and perhaps only way for the ICC to meet its mandate and to help end impunity. And in the literature, there are all sorts of discussions as to how it is that the ICC might be able to do this. Um, and the first is to say, well, it might even be that the ICC can contribute to the ending of impunity even before a crime is committed. That is to say that there might be an incentive for governments to have legislation within their own domestic statute books which allows them to prosecute crimes even before they exist in their own country. The hope being that they will never have to be used, but governments nevertheless have this incentive to legislate um, if necessary. So that's the first theory that people have come up with. The second is to say, well, even after the crimes have been committed, um, where if the ICC is threatening prosecutions, well, it follows that if a state is faced between a choice of either conducting prosecutions themselves or allowing the ICC to conduct those prosecutions, it seems to logically follow that they would probably, in most situations, choose to prosecute those cases themselves. So this is what Cryer uh, and Burke White have said might happen. And the third explanation is that this idea that the individuals involved in those crimes, who are often members of government, they might be shamed, embarrassed, stigmatised. They might feel a, a personal sense of obligation to, to initiate domestic prosecutions so that they're not embarrassed by them going on to the international stage. All of these reasons, people say, are why we should be really enthusiastic about this strategy of positive complementarity. Very new strategy, and what we're lacking at the moment are empirical case studies which actually test whether these theories actually apply in real life. And that's the contribution I'm trying to make with this project. 
um, through this case study of Kenya. Can we say that this hope of positive complementarity is being realised? Um, and that takes us to um, the issue of what we mean by ending impunity. So this is the objective that the prosecutor has set for himself. What do we mean by ending impunity? And I think it's, it's something which we, in the field of transitional justice, we can throw this term around, end impunity, and everyone agrees with us. Everyone says, yes, that's a good idea, let's end impunity. But no one really has that discussion as to what we actually mean when we say that. We all agree it's a good thing, but let's have that discussion as to what we mean by it. And I think if I'm going to hold the prosecutor to account here, to say whether you have ended impunity or not, it's, it's important that we be a bit clear here as to what he's actually doing. Um, and so I spent some time reading through um, OTP policy papers, speaking with people within the OTP, but also people within Kenya. What did they understand to mean the end of impunity? Um, but we start with, there's a definition which has been provided by the United Nations on what ending impunity means. And that speaks about the impossibility of conducting prosecutions and investigations. The impossibility. So that means two things. One, there are no prosecutions or investigations. And two, it's impossible for there to be so. So this means not only does any impunity require that there be prosecutions, but it also requires that any necessary rule of law reforms be undertaken so that in the future, prosecutions can be undertaken. So those are the first two things. Prosecutions, rule of law reforms. We can see that they've also made reference to making reparations. That's another um, area that the United Nations say um, is important to ending impunity. So three things, prosecutions, rule of law reform, and making reparations. What did the victims say? Well, they say, again, prosecutions. They say, if you're ending impunity, you've got to have prosecutions not just high level, but low level perpetrators as well. They say you've got to have rule of law reformed. A lot of the victims told me that I don't care if um, the president gets prosecuted. I want to make sure that um, when I see a crime, I can report it to the police and know that, that they'll take my statement and that there'll be prosecutions of the persons involved and the judge won't be bribed. For people in Kenya, if you're going to talk about ending impunity, that's what you need. They also spoke about reparations. They said, look, if you're going to end impunity, um, I was forced off my land uh, as a result of this violence. Um, how can I possibly say there's an end to impunity unless I receive some form of justice for that in terms of reparations to the losses I have suffered? So reparations was a theme that came up quite a lot. And they also spoke about deterrence. They said, we have to send a signal to the leaders and to the perpetrators who are actually on the ground that they cannot commit these crimes in the future. And we cannot say that there's an end to impunity unless they're deterred from committing these crimes. But then we ask the prosecutor, what do you mean by ending impunity? And there's no clear explanation. Perhaps it's deliberately vague, I don't know. But the prosecutor has said a couple of things in relation to Kenya. He said, my job is to prosecute, period. And he said, I will only prosecute two to six cases. The rest, Kenya, is up to you. So you can see there that the prosecutor has a very different understanding of what it means to end impunity. It's limited to prosecutions, and it's limited to prosecutions of the high level perpetrators. Now, what's a PowerPoint presentation without a Venn diagram? <laughs> That's just basically summarizing what I've just, what I've just said there. Um, 
it seems to be everyone is agreement that if you're going to end impunity, you need prosecutions. Um, victims and academics and, and practitioners seem to agree that rule of law reforms and reparations are also necessary to end impunity. Um, and deterrence from the victims is also necessary. Now, what I'm focusing on in this presentation is the issue of prosecutions, and that's what I'm going to be speaking about for the remainder of today. So to what extent has the Office of the Prosecutor contributed to any community in the sense of ensuring that there have been prosecutions of high-level and low-level perpetrators in Kenya? Now, I recognise that if you're going to end impunity, you need to do these other things as well, but that's not what I'm focusing on today. It's just on the prosecutions themselves today, which I think is the most interesting part. So that brings us to introducing the case study of Kenya. Um, a lot of you will recall the post-election violence which occurred in Kenya at the end of 2007 and start of 2008. Um, so it occurred, uh, started in 27th of December 2007 and continued through until the 28th of February 2008. Um, there were many historical, um, uh, complicated uh, causes of the violence, and that's what that cartoon in the top right-hand corner is hinting at. I'm not proposing to address those today. Um, the, the violence was both spontaneous and organised. So there was spontaneous violence when uh, supporters of Raila Odinga's ODM party, that's the Orange De Democratic Movement, believed that the elections, the presidential elections, had been stolen by the incumbent President Kibaki uh, and his party of national unity. And as a result, there was spontaneous violence which occurred um, in Nairobi um, and, and throughout Kenya uh, in the immediate aftermath of the announcement of the election results. But in addition to that, there was organised violence. And indeed, every election since Kenya returned to multi-party politics in 1991 there has been violence at election time. This is the time when people express their grievances um, for, for historical injustices. This is the time that they express those violently in Kenya. Um, and so even before the election results were announced, there were organised meetings to plan violence if the results did not go their way. Um, and so when I say that violence was spontaneous and organised, Organised in the sense that there were uh, politicians, tribal elders, business persons who were holding meetings in advance of the elections and planning what sort of violence they would conduct. And immediately after the uh, elections results, there was spontaneous violence, but then a few days after that, there was organised violence. And that is where the International Criminal Court gets involved, when the violence becomes organised. Um, so the first type of violence was the spontaneous. The second was the organised violence by the ODM supporters who felt that they had had the election taken away from them against perceived PNU supporters. Um, and that lasted for a few weeks in Kenya. So it lasted into the new year in 2008. The third type of violence which occurred was retaliatory violence, which is those who were supporters of the PNU party um, organising themselves to respond to the violence that they were facing. Um, and this involved the Mungiki criminal sect, um, who were basically employed by politicians, businessmen, tribal elders, to respond to this violence with their own form of violence. So that's the third type. 
And the fourth was police violence. Um, it's estimated that approximately one third of all of the killings were by police, um, partly because um, they were not prepared for the violence, they were not sufficiently organised, they were not sufficiently trained. There's also allegations that they were themselves involved in the organisations of these meetings um, and that they um, had biases against one ethnic community or another and that's why they got involved in the violence. So those four types of violence um, resulted in a total, just over 1,000 persons were killed in, a, in less than two months. Um, another uh, 600,000 were forci forcibly dis displaced. Um, another at least 900 um, recorded acts of rape and sexual assault, um, but the official report into the violence described this as being just the tip of the iceberg, um, and numerous property offences as well. The violence came to a conclusion as a result of the Kenya um, National Dialogue and Reconciliation Process. This was a mediation process which was chaired by Kofi Annan. And um, what they negotiated, which seems to happen so often when there's a disputed election these days, is that they negotiated a power sharing agreement. So PNU and ODM got to form a power sharing government. They couldn't decide who had won the election, but they formed a power sharing government. But then they also agreed on what steps would be taken to ensure that these, this episode, which is the worst in Kenya's history, what steps would be taken to ensure that this never happens again. Um, and these were the steps were um, involving um, a report into the violence. So a 600-page report was commissioned um, called the Waki Report, chaired by um, a judge of the Kenyan Court of Appeal and now the Supreme Court, Philip Waki. Um, and this leads us to one of the more interesting parts of the Kenyan case study, which is the sealed envelope. Um, here is Waki with Kofi Annan. The decision was basically, they had evidence of who was responsible for the violence, but they couldn't decide whether to name those persons or not. So what they, and, and they were concerned that in the past, reports had been written into violence in Kenya, and these reports were just shelved and left to collect dust, and nothing was ever done about it, even though persons were named. So there was a concern as to, you know, that if they were to name persons, the same thing would happen again. So what was quite ingenious, what Waki did was he said, okay, we're not going to name the persons publicly in the report, but what we're going to do is we're going to put those names into a sealed envelope. We're going to give that sealed envelope, and that's it from the bottom of the picture here, sealed envelope to Kofi Annan. And Kofi Annan, is going to observe the process, um, we're going to recommend that a special tribunal be established to try those persons who are responsible. And we're going to provide deadlines for when that tribunal has to be established. If the government does not meet those deadlines, then Kofi Annan is under instructions to hand that sealed envelope over to the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court to conduct his own prosecutions. So in a sense, Waki's implementing a strategy of positive complementarity himself. Um, I spoke with him and he didn't realise he was doing this at the time, but looking back in hindsight, that's precisely what he was doing. Um, there is the sealed envelope. Um, ultimately, no special tribunal was established, so here it is being handed over to the prosecutor. That's the prosecutor there on the right. Um, his successor as prosecutor is there in the centre. That's him opening up the sealed envelope. 
Um, we talk about this sealed envelope. It was actually boxes of materials, which are containing all the supporting evidence. People don't often talk about the boxes of material because it's not quite as sexy, but um, that's the boxes of materials arriving at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Um, so how did we get from Nairobi to The Hague? What was the process that was followed? Um, so first of all, an important date, I'm not sure how well you can read all of that at the back there, it might be a bit small. Um, 5th of February 2008, the Office of the Prosecutor releases a press release with the violence still ongoing. And he says that he is carefully considering any crimes which may have been committed in Kenya. This is something which the OTP does out of practice now. Whenever there's a crime which is within the court's jurisdiction, they release a press release, only a couple of sentences long, which says that they're carefully considering the situation. This is to place the country on notice, to say, look, we believe there are crimes within our jurisdiction which have been committed in your country, and if you fail to investigate or prosecute, we will come in and do so. Important for the purposes of this study, because that is the start of this strategy of positive complementarity in Kenya. Um, the Waki report, released on the 15th of October, the first deadline was for the principles to, this is the President and the Prime Minister, to commit to the implementation of the Waki report. That was for the 16th of December. They did that uh, 24 hours before that deadline. Um, the second deadline was for, the was for legislation to be passed for the creation of a special tribunal. That had to be done by the 29th of January. Now that deadline came and went and no legislation was passed. But Kofi Annan held off on handing over the sealed envelope because politicians were, it was, it was tabled in Parliament to be discussed, and ultimately it was, and it was debated. The 12th of February, the Special Tribunal, STK, Special Tribunal for Kenya, I've called it one because it's the first attempt, there were three attempts made. The first attempt, it failed. So the politicians voted against establishing a Special Tribunal, and we'll discuss the reasons for that a bit later. Again, Kofi Annan does not hand over the sealed envelope immediately, instead he grants an extension, to the government, um, and they do basically do nothing for a few months, um, and then the International Criminal Court gets involved again, um, for the first time in fact, and they enter into what's called a complementarity contract, that is that the prosecutor invited members of government to the Hague, they had closed door discussions, which they produced minutes for, which are publicly available, and they said that they're going to enter into a complementarity contract, which is to say, Kenya has until the 30th of September of this year to conduct its own investigations and prosecutions. If they fail to do so, then Kenya will voluntarily um, refer the matter to the court so it can do it. So this is a contract that they entered into. Um, then the sealed envelope was handed over. Just so happens that as the sealed envelope is being handed over, then the government gets together again and says, maybe we should have a talk about this. Um, and so cabinet discusses the issue of establishing a special tribunal. Again, that fails. The, the cabinet decides that the post-election violence suspects will be dealt with by the Truth and Reconciliation, Reconciliation Commission. Um, so on the 26th of November, 2009, this is when the prosecutor uses his own powers to initiate a prosecution in Kenya. So he has to request the pre-trial chamber, which is what he does. May I have permission to investigate crimes which may have been committed in Kenya? The pre-trial chamber says yes on the 31st of March. Um, the prosecutor says thank you and goes and visits Kenya um, and spends a week there interviewing all sorts of people. And of course his staff spend much longer there. 
And on the 15th of December, a significant moment, he announces what becomes known as the Ocampo Six. These are the six people he believed to be most responsible for the crimes in Kenya. Um, these six persons make their initial appearances in Kenya uh, uh, at, the, at the court, at the ICC, in April. Um, September and October of 2011, they hold what's called confirmation of charges hearings. <coughs> this is where the accused are required to attend the court um, to answer whether there's a reasonable case to answer, essentially. Um, and they held that there were. Um, Pre-trial chamber said yes. For four of you, we think that you have to answer charges. The other two can go. 4th of March of this year, Kenya holds another set of presidential elections. Uh, fortunately, nowhere near as violent as the previous elections. In fact, they were rather peaceful. But guess who happened to be elected? One of the Akampo Six. Uh, Uhuru Kenyatta was elected as president. Um, and another member of the Akampo Six, now the Akampo Four, in fact, now the Akampo Three, um, William Ruto was elected as the vice president of Kenya. So now two of the three are actually members of government. In fact, the two most powerful members of government. The charges against one of the remaining four were dropped in March of this year. So we now have three suspects remaining. Um, the trial against Uhuru Kenyatta is scheduled to commence in July of this year. And we found out today that the trial of William Ruto is scheduled to commence in September of this year. So you can see from this timeline, you've got what's, this part here is what's called the preliminary examinations phase. This is where the court considers, the OTP considers whether they have jurisdiction over the case. And this is where they're trying to um, encourage domestic prosecutions as much as possible. Then we have the investigations phase, where they're investigating the crimes, the pre-trial phase, and the trial phase. Now, during this preliminary examinations phase, this is where the prosecutor is doing all of his, his bits and pieces to, to try to encourage domestic prosecutions. He says he's carefully monitoring the situation. He says he's actively encouraging um, prosecutions. He's making these statements both in person in, in The Hague, as well as in Nairobi, as well as in um, statements to the media. Instance, the complementarity contract we spoke about earlier enters into a division of labour, which is to say, I'll prosecute the big fish, you prosecute the rest. Um, and ultimately, he threatens international prosecutions. And during the investigations phase, what he does is to say, well, the ICC process is inevitable. You're not going to be able to stop that. I've got a really strong case in Kenya. Um, no person is going to be immune from prosecution. The prosecution is going to be exceptionally fast. There's nothing you can do to stop this process. But I'd still like some domestic proceedings, please, because I can't prosecute everybody. So we're still trying to encourage domestic prosecutions even when the ICC process has begun. So the first question is, how much how effective has it actually been in ensuring that there have been prosecutions of low-level and high-level perpetrators in Kenya? So starting with the low-level perpetrators. Now, according to the government's own statistics, this is from a report that they released in August of last year, there were nearly 9,000 post-election violence cases which they had records for. But... Of these, the government says they did not even attempt to prosecute in approximately 8,000. 
of these. So you can already see that the vast majority of post-election violence cases for low-level perpetrators resulted in no prosecutions. The government's response was we just did not have the evidence to prosecute these people. So what they have, according to, again, this is according to the government's statistics, which are a little bit sketchy on this issue, is being approximately, as far as I can work out, about 350 convictions. Uh, if you do a quick bit of math, that's about 4% of all the post-election violence cases which have been reported um, have resulted in convictions so far. But who is being convicted? What are they being convicted for? We said earlier that the official report said that there were over 1,100 deaths uh, during the post-election violence, but so far only three persons have been convicted of murder in the post-election violence. Um, again, we said that there are at least 900 reported cases of rape and sexual assault, but so far, according to the government's own statistics, there have been only 49 prosecutions. Um, and even these figures, that number of 49, it's difficult to accept that as being, um, as being genuine. There is a, a Human Rights Watch report was written in 2012, uh, which assessed a lot of these files, which I could not get access to myself. And, and they said that um, some of these convictions were for, for gender-based violence convictions. Um, two involved men who were said to have had carnal knowledge with a sheep. Um, others were for less serious offences, so sexual violence was committed, but people were, committed, were convicted for less serious offences, property offences, for example. Um, some of the figures, some of the files which actually included within the 49 were actually acquittals. But they included that in that figure of 49, and some actually were for convictions which were wholly unrelated to the post-election violence, but they were included in the government statistics there. So in conclusion, it appears that the majority of convictions for low-level perpetrators appear to have been for very minor property offences and for minor breaches of the peace. That is, things like publishing false rumours were included in that 350, and possession of a weapon were included, but not the use of that weapon. Creating disturbance was another conviction within that 350. So you can see that it's not the most serious crimes within the post-election violence which are being prosecuted in Kenya, at least according to the government statistics on that. <coughs> what about the high-level perpetrators? Have they been prosecuted, first of all, locally, and then we'll look at the ICC? Um, now, there was a, a Kenya National Commission on Human Rights report which was released in 2008, about the same time as the Waki report, which publicly named 219 people who, have, who were believed to have been responsible for the violence. And that include William Ruto and others, um, and Kenyatta as well. Despite that, according to the research I've conducted, I can't find a single politician, businessman, or tribal elder who's ever been convicted within a Kenyan court for their role in the post-election violence. Um, the police, according to the Waikou report, were responsible for at least 405 deaths, as well as property crimes and sexual assaults and the rest of it. But again, according to the research I've conducted, there has not been a single conviction for murder or for sexual violence of the, for, by the police. Um, partly this is because the government claims they do not have the evidence to prosecute. 
Some cases have gone to court, but the Attorney General uses his power to stop those prosecutions proceeding. Uh, one very public case went to court and involved um, a police officer who had been sh um, filmed shooting an individual. Um, this film was admitted into evidence. Um, 15 witnesses testified that they had seen the shooting, but the judge acquitted on the basis that the, there was reasonable doubt as to whether that, that gun had been issued to that police officer on that day. And that's because the serial number on that particular gun was identical to the serial officer, which was in fact recorded as being issued to him, but for the addition of the number two at the end of it. So there's widespread allegations that there was tampering with evidence here, and perhaps um, even, even worse. Um, and, and that was the most high profile prosecution of a police officer and resulted in a, a not guilty verdict. So the high level perpetrators have not been prosecuted at the local level. So that's why we have the Ocampo 6 in Kenya. Um, here is a confidential letter um, which I can share um, because it was actually disclosed by the government so that they could hopefully stop the cases going to the ICC. Um, dated 5th of May 2011, where they basically say that um, they weren't even investigating the Ocampo 6 in 2011. Uh, keeping in mind that some of those names in the Ocampo 6 were actually released in the 2008 report that I just spoke about from the Kenya National Human Rights Commission. Um, and also, when I spoke with people in 2010 for the first time, they were telling me all of the names who actually ended up being in the Ocampo 6. They were telling me that they were the people responsible. But the official government response was, we haven't had any reports of the Ocampo 6 being involved. So that's why they said they have not been conducting investigations into them. So here are the Ocampo 6. Um, I won't go through all of them, but um, suffice to say, the top left is William Ruto, uh, who was the Minister for Education. Um, and uh, bottom middle is Uhuru Kenyatta, son of the country's first president, one of the richest men in Africa, um, now the president. So we've got the president here and the deputy president, the top left. Uh, so there were six originally, um, two were not confirmed, um, and the third uh, was uh, the prosecution said they did not have enough evidence to continue with the case in March of this year, so that did not continue. So what has the ICC's impact been in Kenya? So we've seen that there have not really, um, there have not been the, the prosecutions that the, um, that the court had hoped for. And in some ways, if we say that the, the prosecutor for a success considers that a success would be no cases before the court, the fact that the court now has cases, you could say perhaps that's a failure. Um, that might be a little bit too harsh because it might be underestimating some of the contributions that the ICC may have nevertheless made to Kenya um, in terms of ending impunity and encouraging prosecutions to occur. Um, in some ways, I think the ICC might be on the fool's errand here, um, in that what they were trying to do was to convince politicians to establish a special tribunal to try themselves and their allies. Perhaps unlikely that's going to occur. Even if they can convince people of that, that's assuming that Kenya has the capacity to try all of these thousands of people. Perhaps they don't. In fact, the police will tell you, we just don't have the manpower to conduct all of these investigations. So perhaps the ICC trying to encourage prosecutions 
was always set up to fail. It can just not have the capacity to do so. And even if they could convince politicians to, to do this and they could convince, or they, they had the resources to do so, politicians don't control the police. So even if the Attorney General decides it's a good idea to conduct domestic prosecutions, that doesn't mean that the police are going to follow his orders and going to actually carry out those prosecutions. They don't control the judges. So the ICC's strategy of positive complementarity, where they're focusing on government members, doesn't necessarily follow that they're going to result in prosecutions. Important to note that the initial impetus for prosecutions did not come from the ICC. This wacky report, all the momentum that came from that, that was before the ICC really got involved. That was part of the Kenya National Dialogue and Reconciliation process with Kofi Annan. Um, so it's important to distinguish the ICC's involvement there. There's no doubt that the prosecution, the politicians were aware of the ICC and were influenced by its actions. Um, this can be evidenced by the fact that they do nothing until there's actually an impending deadline and all of a sudden there's a flurry of activity. It can also be influenced by the fact that politicians are changing their positions depending on which way the ICC is going. So the most famous example is William Ruto one of the accused who I spoke about, who initially threw his support behind the International Criminal Court. He's on record as saying it will take International Criminal Court 99 years to complete its work, which if you're going to be somebody who might be one of the accused before the International Criminal Court, might be a good reason to support that rather than a local tribunal. So he supported the International Criminal Court over a local tribunal. He voted against a local tribunal. Then Kofi Annan hands over the envelope the ICC. All of a sudden, Ruto changes his position. He now says, let's deal with them with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Then that goes on for a little bit longer, and then the Acampo Six is named, and he's one of them. Again, that day, Ruto changes his position again and says, I now support the local tribunal. The same local tribunal he had not supported a year earlier. So you can see that politicians are aware of the ICC, they're being influenced by its, its threatened prosecutions. And again, it follows from this that the, the ICC is most influential when the impending deadlines are imminent. When the deadlines are a long way away, it seems that they don't even take any notice of it. But when the deadlines are imminent, politicians take more notice of it. But there comes a point where, when politicians believe that the International Criminal Court's involvement is inevitable, the ICC starts to lose some of its bargaining power then. Politicians regard, in Kenya, regard it as being a choice, a binary choice. Either prosecutions at local level or the ICC. If the ICC is already involved, that takes away a significant incentive to establish the special tribunal. So when ICC prosecutions are seen to be inevitable, they have less of an influence. There are certainly some who were influenced by the ICC. They were, they were worried about the image that it would have on Kenya. Some people spoke about state sovereignty um, in Parliament. They said, we are Kenya, we are a sovereign nation, we should not allow this to go to the ICC. It would be a sense of national shame, national embarrassment. So the ICC was certainly having some influence in what it was hoping to achieve. But ultimately, politicians responded according to their own vested interests. They supported the special tribunal when they thought it might prosecute their opponents, and did not support the special tribunal when they thought it might prosecute themselves or their allies. 
So even though the RCC is having an involvement and an influence here, um, politicians were ultimately deciding their issues based on what was going to be in their own interests. And this leads to a whole lot of stalling tactics from the Kenyan government. So um, basically what they're doing throughout this entire period is saying, yes, we support an end to impunity, we are going to cooperate with the court, um, we are going to ensure that post-election violence suspects are held accountable. But at the same time, they've taken every opportunity to stall the ICC through this process. There was first, the day that um, the Arcampo 6 was named, a motion was filed to withdraw Kenya from the Rome Statute, and it was passed. Um, that's not to say that Kenya has withdrawn from the Rome Statute, it's just saying politicians support Kenya withdrawing from the Rome Statute, establishing the International Criminal Court. Um, they lobbied the Security Council to defer the case. The Security Council has the power to defer a case for up to 12 months. So there was a shuttle diplomacy which went on where um, Kenyan ambassadors travelled all over Africa, got support of the African Union, then started lobbying Security Council members uh, to defer the case. Ultimately, that was unsuccessful. An Article 19 application, this is to say, basically the first time this has ever happened at the court, this is to say, we think that you should not have jurisdiction over this case because they are currently being investigated and prosecuted in Kenya. Uh, and this is where we got the confidential letter from earlier. This is where they started to say, we are conducting investigations into the Campo City. If you just give us a chance to do it, we will do it ourselves. Um, and this is where they start to put arguments like, we've got a new constitution, we're going to have a new chief justice, we're going to have a new attorney general. When all of these things are in place, we will conduct our own prosecutions in Kenya and we don't need the ICC. In fact, the ICC has no jurisdiction over this matter. That was rejected by the court. But it's interesting, there's a paradox here because on the one hand, this is in uh, March and April, they'll go to the Security Council and saying, you should defer prosecutions. You should ask the ICC, ICC to defer prosecutions because if we were to conduct them, it'd be a threat to international peace and security. And the following month, they go to the ICC and say, we are going to conduct investigations and prosecutions into the post-election violence. They're clearly doing whatever it takes to ensure that there's no jurisdiction over this. They said, let's try it with the East African Court of Justice. President Kibaki got himself onto the committee and chaired the committee, which ensured that crimes against humanity could now be tried by the East African Court of Justice. When that didn't work, they tried the African Court of Justice and Human Rights. They said, even if Kenya can't prosecute and the East African Court of Justice won't prosecute, the African Court of Justice and Human Rights will. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, that doesn't actually exist yet. Um, so that was always going to be an optimistic argument, but they thought they would run with it anyway. This month, they've gone to the Security Council again, and they've started lobbying the Security Council to say, we think you should defer the case for 12 months because it's going to be a threat to international breach and peace and security. And they've even started lobbying, I think, the government of Japan um, so that they can support Kenya's application to become a non-permanent member of the Security Council in 2014 so that they can hopefully defer the cases in the future. That's not to say anything about the defence applications. Defence are always putting in applications to stall the process. Um, and the stalling of investigations. Um, Kenyan government has been asked to cooperate by providing documents and, and things to support investigations. They've failed to do so. So all of those reasons make me think that perhaps positive complementarity has not been success that we would hope for. But all we've looked at so far is through the lens through what it is the OTP is trying to achieve. 
But what about other things? Are there other negative consequences of the ICC becoming involved in Kenya? And this is what, in the literature, some people call the shadow side of complementarity. What downsides are there, apart from not achieving what you say you're going to achieve, what other negative impacts has the court had? Uh, and I'll just run you through a couple. Um, first is, to the extent that the International Criminal Court succeeded in encouraging the government to establish a local mechanism, it was to establish a defective local mechanism. That is, it was a mechanism that political elites in Kenya were going to use to prosecute their opponents and ensure that they themselves would not be prosecuted. One member of parliament, a minister, even got up and said, the reason we do not want to go to The Hague is because we cannot control The Hague. We can control a local tribunal in Kenya. So it was set up in such a way that um, uh, there was no guarantee of independent funding for the court. Um, the, the Attorney General would still have the power to stop proceedings at any time. The High Court would have the power to overrule any decision of the Special Tribunal. The President would have the opportunity to pardon any person who was convicted at the Special Tribunal. So it was clearly not the sort of mechanism that the ICC is hoping would be set up. So that's one of the shadow sizes, that to the extent that the ICC succeeded in convincing the Kenyan government to establish a local mechanism, it was only ever going to be a local mechanism which was defective. The second is a little bit paradoxical. ICC's involvement might have discouraged domestic prosecutions. And I'll give you two examples. The first is there were some within the, the government who were genuinely committed to ending impunity in Kenya and they wanted to establish the most robust, effective special tribunal that they could. But they realised the proposal that was put to them was a defective one. So they were given a choice between a defective local mechanism and the ICC. So they voted, even though they wanted to end impunity, they wanted prosecution, they voted against the Special Tribunal because they saw the ICC as being a superior alternative. So in that sense, the ICC's existence discouraged this group of persons from actually supporting a local um, tribunal. Um, on the flip side, those who were trying to protect themselves and their allies, they were given a safety valve. They were able to say, we support the end of impunity, but the only way you can do that is to go to the ICC. So they also voted against the legislation. So the ICC's existence might have actually, in fact, discouraged prosecution, precisely the opposite of what the, the prosecutor was trying to achieve. Resulted in divisions within the government of national unity. This is the power-sharing government. So, one of the great challenges for a power-sharing government who have just been in conflict is to make sure they can work together to implement all the reforms that are necessary to ensure that there can be an end to impunity. The ICC issue was extremely divisive, and not just between parties, but within parties. And it actually has resulted in splits, and that's not to say that these splits wouldn't have occurred anyway without the ICC, but it has resulted in all sorts of splits and divisions within the government and persons refusing to cooperate with each other as a result of disagreements on the ICC. Politicians have been quite savvy. They've politicised the ICC issue. Um, so what they have done is just, um, uh, those who are accused 
have portrayed themselves as victims. They've portrayed the court as being an international conspiracy against their own ethnic group. They've held prayer rallies in Kenya in front of their own ethnic groups where they've tried to encourage support for their position and describe the ICC as being a slaughterhouse. And they've described the opposing ethnic group as being part of this conspiracy. And you can start to think about how such dangerous language might be causing all sorts of problems later in the future. Um, and the politicians were able to seize this opportunity because of the victimhood that they were getting from being um, named as uh, suspects at the ICC. And finally, there's increased threat to witnesses. So what all of the witness, what the victims were saying in Kenya is every time this ICC issue comes up, there's more violence towards us and our families. So every time there's a decision at the ICC, every time the prosecutor does something new, every time a new deadline is reached, there's more and more violence directed towards us. And I spoke with one person who said that they, she was in her home um, as, as people threw rocks at her house and outside chanted, Hague, Hague, Hague. So you can see that this ICC issue is actually increasing the threats and intimidation to witnesses. So finally, we've come to, to some conclusions. Um, I've painted a pretty grim picture, I think, for the ICC's involvement in Kenya today. Um, I don't want to I don't want to say that I'm not a supporter of positive complementarity. I, I think it's something which we should work towards in the future. I think it's something that is worth persevering with. Um, but I also think that if we are going to adopt this in future situations, which the OTP has said they are going to do, and they've adopted it in every situation since Kenya, if they're going to do that, we need to be honest about how effective it's actually been so we can make any necessary adjustments. The pre-trial hearings uh, where accused were appearing in court for the very first time, that had tremendous symbolic significance in Kenya. For the first time, some of their senior leaders were being forced to appear in a courtroom to answer serious charges. And there's one instance which a lot of people spoke to me about where William Ruto tried to interrupt the judge at one point and was told to sit down. And Kenyans regard that as being significant. Never before have they seen such a senior member of government told to sit down. I don't want to underestimate the symbolic significance of that. I don't know how you measure symbolism, and that's why I haven't quite spoken about it in depth here, but I want to recognise that that has something important which has happened. But returning to the, the test which I set up for myself, which was to what extent has the ICC encouraged prosecutions in Kenya? We can see that most low-level perpetrators have not being prosecuted. Most high-level perpetrators have not been prosecuted. In fact, we're limited to the three remaining at the ICC as being the only real prospect we have for senior levels, senior members to be prosecuted. Whether that occurs or not in the future, we have to wait and see, but you have to have real doubts as to whether the president and the deputy president of the country is going to support the International Criminal Court's attempts to prosecute them for crimes against humanity. If those prosecutions cannot go ahead, we might well see that high-level perpetrators are also escaping accountability for the crimes committed. 
But in addition to failing to, in my opinion, failing to achieve the objectives that we had set out for positive complementarity, there's also those shadow sides that I spoke about. Increased threat to witnesses, politicisation of the ICC issue. Perhaps the ICC even discouraged local prosecutions. And to the extent that it did encourage local prosecutions, maybe it was to encourage a defective local mechanism. These are the, the truths that we have to face when we're talking about whether positive complementarity is something which we can accept and support in the future. And to leave you with that, which is where we're at at the moment. Here we have William Bruto on the left, Deputy President, and Uhuru Kenyatta in the centre, President. And, if, and uh, William Bruto is saying, don't worry, we're going to cooperate with the ICC just fine. But of course, Kenyatta's doing everything he can to get that ball and chain of the ICC away from his leg. And I think that's where we are now with the ICC's involvement with Kenya. Thank you.